Beyond the Books is a podcast from the University of Edinburgh's School of Literatures, Languages, and Cultures that gives you a behind-the-scenes look at research and the people who make it happen. I'm Emma Aviat, a first-year PhD student of English literature, and I'm taking over for Ellen as the host of this podcast. In my very first episode, I interview Wilson MacLeod, a professor of Gaelic in the Celtic and Scottish Studies Department, who also has a background in law. In this episode, we will discuss his recently published book, Gaelic in Scotland, Policies, Movements, Ideologies, as well as the fact that he's recently won the Fletcher Saltoon Award for his contribution to public life, a very prestigious award granted by the Saltire Society. This topic was very interesting for me, as I didn't have much knowledge of Gaelic before preparing for the interview. Of course, I knew it was a language spoken in parts of Scotland, but reading Wilson's book and speaking to him on the subject really opened my eyes to not only the depth and richness of the Gaelic language, but also to the complexities of language policy. I hope you learned something from this episode, and check out Wilson MacLeod's work, or maybe just learn some Scottish Gaelic on Duolingo. Something to do while we're all in lockdown again. Stay safe, everyone, and thank you for listening. Wilson. Hello. Morning. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's great to have you. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Congratulations as well for your new book, Gallic in Scotland, Policies, Movements, Ideologies, as well as for winning the Fletcher Saltoon Award from the Saltire Society for your contribution to public life. You've gotten an amazing amount of things accomplished during this crazy year. <laughs> well, thank you very much. These were things that have taken a while, I guess, to my new book is something I've been working on for too many years, really. So um, that's just a culmination, fortunately. Of course, yeah. I mean, how has it been for all of that to kind of come to a head when all of this sort of craziness is happening? Well, it's just, it's a strange year. It is, it's sort of anticlimactic. You know, I had a book launch event, but that wasn't live. And um, usually there's more conviviality and celebration to these kinds of things when um, when we can all get together but I think we're all getting used to this now. Okay so just trying to get started could you actually give us a little bit more information on your background and actually how you came to be a researcher of Celtic and Scottish studies at the University of Edinburgh? Um, well I to keep it short because I've got a fairly complicated history in a sense um, I uh, I was I was born in, in in the U.S. in Boston. I grew up between between England, more in England, and also in the U.S. But I visited uh, Wales and Scotland when I was growing up, and I was very interested in minority languages and and Celtic history and 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 all that. Um, I've got family history, but not particularly close, um, both to Scotland and Ireland. Um, so I was always interested in that, and then I started learning Gaelic when I was uh, about 19, um, and I learned learning it on and off for several years. I actually took a law degree and was practicing law for a while before I started to, decided to come back and really take it take it more seriously. So I came to Edinburgh and I did a master's degree and, uh, and a PhD, and um, I was working at the, the Gaelic College Somorostek in Skye for a couple of years and then, then came back to Edinburgh and I've been here since. Oh, that's interesting to hear about your law background. I know your research focuses on language policy and the government's involvement with preserving languages. Has your background in law really helped you with 
understanding or directing your research? Very much so, yes. I was involved in uh, the campaign to get legislation for Gaelic in Scotland and um, mm -hmm. and I've also been very involved in, in studying that. So studying formal legal uh, aspects of legislation and implementation and so on, but more generally the structure of, of public uh, public administration, public policy, and so on. So it's been very useful to, to me, and um, absolutely, it's uh, something I draw upon all the time. Well, I know that your work with these campaigns for more Gaelic legislation in Scotland contributed to your winning of the Fletcher Saltoon Award for the Saltera Society for your contribution to public life. What has winning this award meant to you, and what do you think it means about the perception of Gaelic in the 21st century? Well, I, I was extremely surprised to win the award. I was very honoured, but uh, more more surprised than honoured. Um, I've been involved in quite a lot of different kinds of, of, of Gaelic activity, but locally, nationally, and things to do with public policy, but also literature and culture. But um, uh, nevertheless, I was extremely surprised by the award. But I do think very much it's it's a, it's a recognition of the of the importance of the 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 cultural and wider significance of, of Gaelic in Scotland. And one of the real changes in the last decades, really since the 1980s or so, has been the growing respect given to Gaelic. Because really for many centuries, Gaelic was profoundly disrespected. It was very marginalized and, and, and denigrated. And this is something that goes back really many centuries in Scotland. And still with us, there's there's quite a lot of contempt and, contempt and indeed hostility to Gaelic today, uh, a minority of, of People with those views, but um, they're pretty strident and pretty relentless uh, despite that. So I think it is an important um, indicator of the recognition for Gaelic more widely. And um, so I think um, my name is on the uh, on this award this year, but I think it's it's really much more an indicator of how things have changed and, and how many people have contributed to this change. And um, uh, as I say, I'm, I'm very honoured by the recognition for me personally, but I think of it as a, as a much wider thing. Yeah, I know this is something you speak about in your book, um, the historic disregard for Gaelic and how it's a more recent phenomenon, this pushing of the Gaelic language to the forefront of language policy and the sort of revitalization of the language. I know one thing that you were saying in your book, uh, Gaelic in Scotland, Policies, Movements, and Ideologies, is that historically literacy rates for Gaelic have been quite low, and that it's actually now more than ever that there are Gaelic publications and people who are writing magazines and um, stories and prose in Gaelic. I know you also said that you teach Gaelic literature as well as doing your language policy research. and. I was just wondering what you thought about Gaelic literature and how it might play a role in revitalizing the language in Scotland and abroad. I think it does play an important role. Um, this really, in a sense, we can see this going back to the, I think, the middle of the 20th century, in a sense. I mean, there's been Gaelic literature um, going back to the early Middle Ages. That's one of the remarkable things about the Celtic language traditions. But speaking of more modern times in Gaelic, really in the 1940s um, and, and, and from then on, a real literary revival in Scotland, um, of whom the poet Sorley MacLean would be the, the best known figure. Um, and that definitely brought a, a, a modernizing perspective to Gaelic, a, a, a newness and a, a, and a fresh energy to it. And I think there have been different ways that that's been built upon ever since. Um, 
and we've had you know different waves of, of literary activity and different many different writers who have played an important role there. In the 21st century, it's been very interesting that traditionally in Gaelic and, and Celtic societies, I think we can say more generally, there is always a strong emphasis on poetry. Um, and that, that's still an important element within Gaelic literature. But in the 21st century, there's been a real surge of um, prose fiction in Gaelic. Uh, which we really didn't see uh, anything like that scale until really about 15 years ago. Um, and that's been very impressive. Um, having said that, um, literacy in Gaelic is, isn't high. Um, not many people speak Gaelic in Scotland, and uh, but only about two thirds of the people who can speak it can, can read it. Um, so it is difficult to build a, a, a culture of um, engagement with 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 the written word um, I think that's that's still a challenge but um, but I think there is a, a dynamic culture that that is coming through and it, it's very encouraging to, to see just so many different writers um, uh, coming in and and, and and writing different kinds of works and I think the, the imaginative range of, of, of Gaelic literature has grown as well um, not to say that traditional themes and and, and topics, aren't important, but um, I am encouraged by the, the innovation and the range of, 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 of contemporary Gaelic literature. Yeah, do you have any, uh, I guess just briefly, are there any suggestions that you might have for, you know, any people to check out who might be listening and might have the chance to read Gaelic? Well, I think one of the things that's, that's unusual about, about Gaelic, I think maybe we could see this in other languages, is that um, a great deal of Gaelic poetry is available in translation mm -hmm. into in English. But very, very little of the of the prose, oh. um, almost. And um, interestingly, there's more of it translated into languages other than English, um, rather than the more immediate language, which is English. Mm. So, for example, one of the finest uh, Gaelic novels called *Jeraganoir*, which in English means the the end of autumn, by uh, Talmud Kainbol. Um, it's not been translated into English, but it was recently translated into Czech. Oh, wow. Um, so if you read Czech or Gaelic, you can read the book, but um, <laughs> it's not available in English, unfortunately. Very fair, yeah. So do you think that the part of the reason for the discrepancy maybe between Gaelic speakers and the literacy has been that it's been more of a community spoken language historically? And now, as we were saying, part of your work is to introduce Gaelic into the Scottish educational system and make it part of the curriculum. Do you think this more formal way of learning Gaelic is attributing to the change in literacy rates within the Gaelic-speaking community? It is, yes. Um, I think we have to, with everything with Gaelic, we just have to preface everything with an awareness that you know speaker numbers continue to decline. Um, that's you know that's the central fact of anything when we talk about Gaelic. That for all the revitalization resurgence. You know, yeah. the core of the language is, is weakening. The core of the language community is weakening. And um, and anything we say shouldn't try to distract from that, that central fact. Um, having said that, there has been a significant growth in Gaelic education in, in recent decades. And younger people are much more likely to be literate in, in, in Gaelic than their, than their forebears, forerunners would have been. Um, so you know, many children are learning Gaelic immersion education and they, they come up you know, with all the skills in the language. We have different kinds of adult learners of Gaelic or new speakers of Gaelic, we might say. Um, and again, often very highly literate. So I think the culture of literacy is, is, is changing. Um, but it is important to, as I say, to bear in mind that there's a large number of 
of, of, of Gaelic speakers who who don't read Gaelic, and 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 many of these you know might might actually be some of the some of the best speakers. So you can have sort of a, a mismatch in skill sets. People who are um, more comfortable with the written words than the spoken word, and then other people who are very much the opposite. So I think getting that balance right is in, is important. Uh, just kind of going back to the role of education in all of this and how it's being taught in schools. Um, I know right now there is a couple of schools in um, Edinburgh that are the Gaelic schools and and in Glasgow. How do you foresee the future of Gaelic being taught in schools? Would you like to see it in a more widespread level across every school, just as an option at least? Or do you think that these Gaelic-specific schools are the stronger way to continue? Well, it's it, it's sort of a, a, a tactical thing in, in in some ways. One of the biggest problems in Gaelic education has been the difficulty of recruiting teachers. Um, I think more could be done on that front, but there is a, a, a shortage of teachers, and therefore it is it's often a matter of where best to put resources and so on. So essentially, it's never been formally adopted as a policy, but um, generally there's been a recognition that. Um, immersion education produces better outcomes that you know people learn the language more effectively by by immersion education rather so the idea of concentrating resources in units and schools that deliver immersion education rather than spreading things more thinly with people just learning Gaelic for say three hours a week or something in secondary school and so on um, so that's been part of it, but I think you know there's there's huge scope for for greater language learning in, in, in Scotland. I mean, it's we don't have definite statistics, but probably around 95% of uh, people going through education in Scotland never study Gaelic for even one hour of their entire schooling. Right. So we're talking about an extremely low base. Um, there's a great deal of scope for for upgrading that. Um, and that could be done in, 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 in different kinds of ways and, 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 and different kinds of places. Um, but certainly I'd like to see more Gaelic in, in the education system. And we're talking about compulsion here. I think one of the things that immediately people thought thinking about is, is you know, we often hear in Gaelic about how Gaelic is being forced down people's throats in Scotland, apparently. Um, but, you know, in 18 of the 32 sorry, that's now 17, 17 of the 32 local authorities in Scotland. Um, not one of, the, they don't offer Gaelic in a single one of their schools. Not one of their schools offers Gaelic as an option in any one of their primary or secondary schools. So um, there's immense scope for, for improving the offer, I think. As we speak about uh, education, it makes me think about how there are going to be more and more children in schools with parents who weren't born in Scotland. Um, it reminds me that at the very end of your book, there's an interesting quote from the novelist and native Gaelic speaker, Andrew Dunn, which suggests that pining for traditional Gaelic communities is useless as they won't be coming back. Instead, he suggests we should be focusing on creating new communities of speakers from all over the world, even those who aren't living in Scotland. Do you agree with this sentiment? What do you think is the best chance of survival for Gaelic? Does it involve bringing in different communities, different countries, different cultures? And what aspects of the culture, of the Gallic culture in this sense, are most important to preserve when we're opening it up? Yeah, I think on this one, it's a very controversial topic, I would say, in relation to Gallic. I think it's one where I would try to have my cake and eat it too, really. Um, 
the centrality and, and, and absolute fundamental importance of the quote-unquote traditional communities, which we particularly think of the Northwest Hebrides, the, the Western Isles, parts of Sky, and, and, and so on. Um, these really are central to the language community and um, really maintaining the continuity of language use in those areas really is very important. Um, and I think there's consensus in that point within Gallic, within Gallic circles. Um, I think that's been disrupted to some extent in, in recent times by I would consider more more strident views um, really essentially taking the view that promoting the language there essentially is the only thing that really matters and anything else is essentially a distraction or, or, or a sideshow. I, I don't think that's helpful. Um, but we can go too far the other direction and imagine that we're just all going to spend the rest of our lives on, on Zoom and, and, and so on, and just scattered individuals around the world logging on to one device or another. I don't think that's the future either. Um, so as I say, I, I like to find ways that we can, um, we can strengthen and build on the inherited tradition, but to, to modernize and extend it. But I think it's, it's definitely very important to find ways to bring new people in, to, to welcome new people in. I mean, I've certainly benefited from that enormously myself, the, the great generosity and support I've, I've received from, from, from Gaelic speakers, you know, ever since I was uh, first learning Gaelic back in the 1980s, um, you know, has been hugely important to me personally. And, and, and I think um, to have a culture where that's, 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 that's really, valorized and, and the energy of that comes across to bring new people in and but bring in all the, the perspectives that um, diversity bring in generally that we have different kinds of experiences and different kinds of um, perspectives um, and I think more generally the idea that you know to, to be a Gallic speaker doesn't mean you have to think a certain way act a certain way look a certain way that there, there are different ways to be to be doing this I think that's that's fundamentally healthy, but at the same time, you know, not to use that as a, a, a some way to sort of say, we're just going to discard what's worn out and no longer relevant. I think that's, that's going too far. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I know one of the new ways that Gaelic has been introduced to new populations or demographics is through technology. For example, I was just looking at my Duolingo app, which might not exactly be the most traditional form of language learning, but I saw that Scottish Gaelic is now on there. I was wondering what you thought the role of the new digital era is when it comes to learning Gaelic, or even just spreading awareness around the language. I think your Twitter, for example, is another really good um, use of social media being used to engage others in conversations around minority languages. Do you think these are areas that Gaelic language educators should focus on, or do you think that there should be more emphasis on the traditional language learning? I think, unfortunately, um, you need more of everything all the time is the problem. Yeah. Um, uh, the famous uh, French uh, sociologist uh, Pierre Bourdieu, he wrote in relation to minority languages and, and so on, that they have to wage a total struggle. You know, there's, there's so many fronts you need to be thinking of, and particularly in terms of things like technology, um, it, it, it changes so fast. Um, even things like, you know, new, new platforms developing, sometimes it's a matter of fashion, you know. So 
you know, 10 years ago, it's something like Facebook was a, was a trendy platform that a lot of young people would, would be involved in. You know, I don't, I, I don't know if there's a 16 year old on the planet who uses Facebook now, you know, uh, and probably in two years time, TikTok will be looked at as something, you know, ancient and, and uncool and, and so on. So it's this constant innovation. And in a sense, if you like, the treadmill is being sped up and that makes it harder for minority languages to keep up. Um, Having said that, it's really important to engage with this, I mean, particularly in relation to um, to young people. Um, and um, I read something very interesting recently, and it certainly chimes with my own experience of my own memories of being a teenager, which wasn't yesterday. Um, you know, a, sort of a cliche in in, in Gaelic. Um, and other minority languages, we, we, need to, we need to make Gaelic cool. It has to be cool, right? But one of the things that's, that I think is very important is that um, for your average, you know, teenager, 15 year old, let's say, their idea of cool is not what people in, you know, in North London think is cool. Sorry for the amateur sociology here, but um, but I think, as I say, we often hear this 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 bland statement: Gaelic needs to be cool. But when we unpick this cool, um, it's not a very cool cool. It's a it's a very mainstream kind of cool. Yeah, so that makes sense. So if you're saying that it would be hard to make Gaelic mainstream cool, um, do you think that? These efforts, such as using Gaelic on road signs or having it be part of everyday life, help with this effort? Like, would making it more common and introducing more daily touch points help normalize? It? Absolutely, yeah. No, that, that that's right. I mean, the, the, the more it becomes quite a uh, a common thing that people, you know, aren't amazed. Uh, it's just yes, uh, like that that that's absolutely the case that it can be uh, more widely accepted. But um, there's a huge distance to to go to that. So, for example, in, in Glasgow, which has been doing a lot for, for Gaelic education, um, you know, a little over 1% of the, the school age population are in Gaelic medium education. It's a lot of people because Glasgow is a big place, but 99% aren't. Um, and even if you're getting it, you know, if you grow up by 10%, if you got it from 1% to 10%, it's still very much on the margins, you know, so that's a long way to go. Yeah, this is just making me think. Um, I know in your book you speak about the very common comparisons of Scottish Gaelic and Irish Gaelic, as well as the Welsh language, as examples of other minority languages within the United Kingdom. Do you think there's been a difference in how these countries have approached the conservation of these languages and made it part of their national identity and mainstream everyday life? I, I think in terms of policy, no, there really hasn't been that much of a different approach. I mean, particularly in the last sort of 30 years or so, there's been a lot of convergence and a lot of respects in Scotland in particular, um, the various things that have been done to promote Gaelic, we can really kind of understand. I, wouldn't, as, I don't want to say copies, but they're heavily influenced by Wales, you know, so if... Um, Somebody from who knew the the sort of policy situation in Wales and the sort of landscape came to Scotland, looked what was being done. They'd recognise everything. It would all sort of make sense, fit together in a, in a way. Um, but they think, God, there's hardly any, not much of this. I know, I see what you're doing, but it's on a very small scale. But but they would they would recognise what the what was happening. Um, the deeper question about the sort of social role and so on, um, we do you know for historical reasons we we talk about 
Celtic languages and they're linguistically related and there's a lot of common historical experience. But in many respects, Scotland's the linguistic and cultural history, political history of Scotland is extremely different from that of Wales. Um, and the position of Gaelic is, is really very different historically. So it doesn't map very closely onto the situation in Wales, um, just in terms of linguistic history, but in terms of um, in terms of sort of questions to do with uh, identity and so on. Um, one of the sort of cliched or, or simplified versions of, of history, if you like, is that Wales was much more was absorbed it was conquered by England quite early on in the 13th century. It was absorbed into England in terms of public administration in the 16th century. It was almost sort of obliterated in, in many respects. There was, there was no sort of national structure left over. Um, um, and within that, the language came to play an extremely important role as sort of a vessel for, for Welsh nationhood, because there weren't other obvious ways in which Welshness could be articulated exactly. Scotland extremely different because Scotland was, came to be part of the wider state by negotiation, the, the Union of 1707, um, and under that key national institutions in Scotland were retained. Um, and so these national institutions, especially the national education, the separate education system, the separate legal system, and the separate national church were these key national institutions, and they've always allowed for um, a sense that, that Scottishness and Scottish distinctiveness is manifested institutionally in that sense. And therefore, language has not played a, an important role, has been quite secondary. And I'm speaking here not just of the Gaelic language in Scotland, but also of, uh, of Scots, um, which again is it's it's been very much in the background compared to these these structural factors, these institutional factors, such as the the, the national pillars of the separate church, legal system, and education system. You know, you're speaking about Scots reminds me of a quote in your book where you say that Gaelic has never really existed in isolation. It's always been spoken with other languages in Scotland, even as far back as I think it goes back to like the ninth century that you mentioned, or some something around that era. <laughs> um, so. In that regard, I know when we're speaking about the national identity of Gaelic, there is the debate where it stands as a national language. Is it a national language of Scotland or like the national language of Scotland? And how has that made a difference in how we've approached it from a language policy point of view? And has that maybe made people hesitant to make it more widespread since it's always been competing with Scots down in the lowlands or... Um, English, or there was a few other like Pictish all the way back <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Um, do you think mm -hmm. that's affected the way that we've approached the language policy as compared to maybe Wales or Ireland? Yeah, it, absolutely it has. Uh, it's a very confused and confusing area uh, in truth. Um, part of it just is, it, it is simple linguistic history that um, the, you know, the linguistic history of, of, of Wales or Ireland up to say, 1200 or even beyond 1500 is just pretty straightforward kind of a binary thing or even often just monolingual one one language scotland is just it has a complex linguistic history and took a long time to walk through all of that that's always been part of it um 
in terms of, of, of the status of Gaelic, it's been a thing that has been argued about and different perceptions of and, and uh, for, for, for centuries, really. I should say that the term national language doesn't really have any recognized meaning, particularly. It's, you know, there's, um, we can find definitions of it, but it isn't something which there's an absolute consensus. But I think we can think of it mostly in terms of um, ideas about nationalism and, na and nationalist movements, which in this sort of conventional understanding by scholars like Ernest Gellner and so on, are very much associated with modern historical processes and uh, the building of, of modern states in the post-French French Revolution period. So it's a, a structural program by which a particular language is embedded as the language of state power and other forms of institutional power, um, and then articulated through things like the national education system and so on. Um, so if we think about it in those terms, then, then Gaelic absolutely is not a national language. Um, uh, but you can, by the same token, you would not really be able to say that Welsh is a national language in, in Wales and so on. So there's uncertainty about what it means. I think um, I think two things, two contradictory things are true. One is that um, more sort of partisan or, or, or strong rhetoric about the national place of Gaelic, sort of very affirmative rhetoric about Gaelic as the true national language and so on, um, is something that was commoner in, in, in the past, and speaking particularly of sort of the first two thirds of the 20th century. Um, you'd hear a lot of that rhetoric from a, a certain slice of activists anyway, I'm not saying it was a mainstream point of view. And in recent decades, that sort of rhetoric has really been dialed down an awful lot. Um, it's not something that people try to 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 uh, insist upon, and it's not part of the program of Gallic revitalization. It's almost as if, um, as Gallic revitalization became more programmatic and specific, and making particular demands about action in particular areas, concrete concrete demands, concrete ideas, rather than that that kind of rhetoric has become less less useful. The counterbalance to that is that I think really since the 1960s or so, um, as we've seen broadly uh, a resurgence of small n nationalism in Scotland, you know, a greater sense of Scottish distinctiveness, whether that be in politics or, or culture and so on, that within that broader movement that there's been more respect for Gaelic mm -hmm. and Gaelic is seen as an important part of the broader cultural wealth and distinctiveness of Scotland. That's unquestionably been out there. So, and, and very much phrased in Scottish terms, in, in national terms. So Scot Gaelic as part of what makes Scotland Scotland, if you like, right? Um, so a softer version of, of, of this national rhetoric and so on. And we can see this, for example, in, um, things like signage so that um, if you drive across the border from England to Scotland on the, on the main roads, um, it says, uh, welcome to Scotland, the idea of Gaelic as iconic of, of Scottishness um, is, is a new idea. I should say, by the way, because it's something that often gets confused, um, the Scottish National Party is often 
people who don't know much about Gaelic tend to often associate Gaelic with the SNP. The SNP has never really been very strong on Gaelic, a little bit stronger than other parties maybe, but, but not very much. The, the signage about welcoming people to Scotland bilingually, that was actually decided by the previous government, the Labour Liberal Democrat government. It's not, not the SNP. Thinking about the signs reminds me of a theory you cite in your book as a cause for the language shift in Scotland away from Gaelic, which is a social morale theory. This basically states that language shifts can occur when the local population loses confidence in its system of values. So they shift in favor of the language which the new values have been mediated. In this case, it was English um, being introduced into the school systems or being used as the official language of Scotland. How can language policy regenerate confidence in minority language communities? And do you think that there has been some sort of confidence that has been reintroduced into the Gaelic language speakers community, given these revitalization efforts, even if they haven't been as extensive as they should have been. Yeah, I think that's that's very important. Um, certainly, historically, if we look at Gaelic, this sense of um, the devaluing of the language by powerful institutions, um, government, and all kinds of institutions, the sense that language had was valueless, was associated with backwardness, lack of opportunity, restricted lives, held people back, um, and so on. Um, and that English was the language of modernization, prosperity, and so on, it was a very, very powerful uh, idea, um, this ideological force. And this was, we see this in Gaelic and then in, in, in other minority languages as well. It's extremely important. and. Not just, not just historically. So the sense in which languages become revalorized, that you know that they are seen to be modern, outward-looking, dynamic, that they bring opportunities rather than restrict them, and so on. Um, if that can be articulated, um, is, is 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 really valuable. It's extremely difficult to do that, um, and sometimes there's a there's a risk of hypocrisy associated with it, that, you know, grand assertions are made that don't align with people's perceptions of obvious reality, right? It can be oversold, and that's something that's sometimes said in Gaelic today, that, you know, there's a bit of overly optimistic rhetoric and, you know, over-accentuating the positive, that, that there can be a risk of that sometimes. Um, but it's extremely important, and we see that kind of revalorization occurring in, in, in many, many respects. And, um, just to go back at the, um, you asked at the start about the, the Fletcher Saltoon Award I was, I was recently given. Again, I'm very surprised and honoured by that, but definitely something I see as, a, a, you know, as a growing recognition of the value of the language. And um, I informed a, a senior scholar in the field, a, a mentor of mine about this, and he said, you know, decades ago, this, this would have been unthinkable, you know, I think of all the sort of disrespect that I put up with for decades in my career. Um, this is a real turnaround. So um, there you are. Yeah. I mean, looking at this past year, one of the main themes really seems to be turning and listening to those who have not traditionally had a platform or a voice in modern authority structures or even public media. In the future, do you see Gallic revitalization efforts focusing more on simply the language itself than the communities which traditionally used Gallic? In this case, the Western Isles, the Hebrides, or the Highlands. I, I wouldn't like to think so, and I think, but I think there is sometimes a risk of sort of false dichotomies and so on. Um, 
So it's, you know, it, 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 it's absolutely critically important that, you know, appropriate support and policies are, are, are put in place to, um, uh, to, to sustain and strengthen um, Gaelic communities. Um, part of the difficulty is that a lot of the factors involved go beyond issues of language. And this is this has actually been a, a factor in Gaelic development going back really since the 19th century that um, the, the wider highlands and islands, traditional Gaelic speaking area, traditionally very underdeveloped, impoverished and so on, with high levels of outmigration and so on. And to try to sustain the social and economic base of, of, of these communities um, uh, was really considered a huge priority. Um, and really for a very long time, there was very little success on that front. So that in most parts of the highlands and islands, or at least the West Highlands and islands, um, the population basically declined steadily for 150 years. Um, and from around 1830 or so up to the 1960s. Um, just decade after decade, um, things were withering away. Um, and in many parts of the Highlands, that's, that's turned around in recent times, but in other parts, not so much. And then we have new challenges, such as a you know, very important one is access to um, appropriate, uh, to affordable housing. Um, this is a, a huge issue in, in many different kinds of places. It's a huge issue in, in Edinburgh, but it's, um, uh, but it's a different thing when you talk about a remote rural community. I mean, there could be literally not, not a house on the island that's available that you can afford to live in. You know, on the entire island, you have to, to leave the place. It's not the same as having to move two miles down the road to a, a less desirable part of a city, you know. Um, but it, it, so, um, but this is a huge structural problem that's very much linked to much deeper economic difficulties and inequalities and structural dislocations of the wider Scottish, UK, indeed global economy. Um, certainly uh, a small language planning agency like Borsna Gaelic, the, the Gaelic agency, um, is not equipped to, 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 to resolve a problem like this. and um, and national governments, I think, in Scotland and the, the wider UK are not showing the sort of approach to public housing programs, social housing programs that the governments in the 1940s and 50s did, where they're you know, building 100,000 um, uh, houses a year and so on or more. We're not seeing that kind of policy innovation and commitment nowadays. So, so there's huge structural problems, and uh, and that sort of tends to, to trump the um, the more concrete and specific issues of language sometimes. Yeah, I think that definitely is an interesting point. There might not be that focus that's happening on the actual livability of the areas that are speaking Gaelic, or at least traditionally have spoken Gaelic for the past um, hundreds of years. So I don't want to take up too much more of your time, and I don't want to shift too strictly away from a serious topic, but um, I one question to kind of end it on a more lighthearted note is I asked you to send me um, your favorite place in Scotland, and as an immigrant myself, hopefully who will be here for a very long time, and hopefully once we're allowed to travel again, I'm asking this because I really do want to see as much of the 
country as possible. It, it is absolutely gorgeous. And once I learn how to drive on the other side of the road, I'm hoping to be able to <laughs> go and visit some of the places. Um, and you sent me... It's, well, it's, pro, tip, a pro tip, Emma, is if you go up to the re really rural uh, parts of the highlands and so on, it's all single track roads anyway. Oh, there, there, is, <laughs> there, is, there is no left or right. The only thing is you have to pull into the passing place the right way. You know. Well, that might be a good place to practice then. Maybe I'll go <laughs> rent a car up there. I am, because that, that is my biggest fear, is just accidentally making a turn and ending up on the wrong lane. But if there's only one lane, I think mm -hmm. I can deal with, with um, pulling over. Mm -hmm. um, but you sent me a really beautiful area. Is it is it pronounced Ascent or... Ascent. 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 Which is... Um, in the northwest of Scotland, mm -hmm. uh, I believe. Could you tell me a little bit about this area and, and when you visited there and why you find it so special? Um, yep, sure. Um, so Ascent, I, I think of the adjoining areas called Koiko. So they're, they're, they're two areas. Um, and then northwest of Ullapool in the mainland is the border between Rossshire and, and, and Sutherland. Um, it's an absolutely spectacular area. Um, quite low population density and lots of single track roads. Um, just the geology of the area is absolutely amazing because it's um, uh, the mountains are eroded in these, these very strange shapes. Uh, the most famous mountain is called Suven, which is um, this almost sugarloaf style mountain that rises just out of the moor. Um, it's a really unworldly uh, place. It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful area, very dramatic mountains um, uh, along, the, along the coast. It's an area with traditionally it would have been strongly Gaelic speaking and Gaelic has really declined very considerably in that area now. Um, uh, but, you know, historically very, very strong connections. Um, it's also part of it was one of the first areas in Scotland, or maybe the first area, I think, that had a um, community buyout. And historically in the Highlands, there's been um, this huge problem of um, uh, landowners exerting almost total feudal control over, uh, over the area and really restricting the lives of the people living there. And over the last sort of 30 years, there's been a wave of community buyouts by which the, the local people have, have bought the estate and then come to manage it for themselves. And there's been more and more of these. Um, but North Ascent was actually one of the very first ones. Um, so that's that's an important standpoint from a social dimension. But I've just been up there to, to visit on my holidays. I've not been involved in anything to do with social or policy development. I'm speaking here as, as a visitor, but um, it's an absolutely um, spectacular area. Um, it's just, uh, and I mean, there are many, many beautiful parts of, of Scotland and, and, and to the, the Highlands and Islands in particular, but there's, there's a, an otherworldly and totally remarkable quality to Coigach and Ascent at the top of my list, personally. I mean, yeah, I'm looking at the photo while you're talking and it does just look absolutely beautiful. I'll try and include this photo some way when we're <laughs> putting this out there and publishing it, but that is definitely going to be high on my list of where I will go so that is um, thank you for sharing that with me um, yeah and thank you for joining me today I thank you so thank much thank you so much Beyond the Books is a production from the University of Edinburgh School of Literatures Languages and Cultures thank you so much for listening today and make sure to keep an eye out for new content which is coming soon <laughs>